Um, it, it's, a, it's wonderful to pick up again in Nehemiah. Uh, this is a, a study that we've been doing over the last number of weeks now. Uh, we reached chapter 5 today, uh, and it's, a, it's a, been a wonderful uh, journey through this book so far, where we've seen the story of God rebuilding and restoring his people and his place for his purpose. Uh, and of course, we know that that meant, in this context of what Nehemiah is writing about, that meant re- his exiled people returning to Jerusalem about 450 years before Christ to rebuild the city walls. But, but of course, as we've mentioned many times, God is still in the business of restoring and rebuilding. Restoring his people through the forgiveness that he offers through Jesus Christ. Then seeking to, to send them to the places where he has put them to live faithful, obedient lives under his purpose. And so this has been a helpful time for us where we've seen God mightily at work. Uh, and so far in the book of Nehemiah, we've seen uh, the building work taking place and gathering pace. Last week then in chapter 4, we, we saw some of the external opposition that was coming towards that rebuilding work. Uh, we even then mentioned some opposition from within, although opposition might have been too strong a term, where that, that anxiety was rising as the people were being overwhelmed by their present circumstances and their future possibilities. And so uh, today we continue on with some of this tension that's coming that could distract the people from the rebuilding work. And the rebuilding work, as we've said all along, is what God has called them to do. It's what God has equipped them for. And so today we're going to see this threat that's coming to the people. And this threat is, again, from within. It's a threat that could divide the people as they seek to rebuild. And this division comes because of money and the reality that some people had lots of it and some people had very little. And the people who had lots tended to be mistreating the people who had little. Uh, and of course, as we think about it in those very broad terms, that isn't a unique issue for this community in Jerusalem nearly two and a half thousand years ago. This is a, an age-old problem. Uh, and ultimately, it finds its roots in, in the deep selfishness that sin brings about. Uh, and selfishness has been part of the human story right from Genesis chapter 4 when Cain killed his brother Abel. And it continues the whole way through Scripture, the whole way through human history, and of course, right to the doorsteps of our own heart, doesn't it? Selfishness. Is a, is, a real, is a real sin that many of us, if not all of us, if we're honest about it, struggle with. Um, but in terms of this chapter in God's Word, and as well as in other places in Scripture, when we see selfishness played out in a way that demeans or, or, or oppresses the poor, then actually God shows us his concern for the poor in how he directs his people to respond. And so today we're going to see a little bit about God's concern for the poor Of course, yes, we see Nehemiah's response. Maybe if you're reading the NIV, you can see the title of the chapter that's been put in is Nehemiah helps the poor. Of course, Nehemiah takes action here. But Nehemiah is not the hero of this story. Nehemiah is not some social warrior bringing huge economic change. No, Nehemiah is a follower of God seeking to live out God's ways. And so God is the hero in this story, as he is in all of Scripture and in all of history. See, we, we see in verse 15, as we'll read in a moment, that Nehemiah acts out of reverence for God. In other words, Nehemiah brings about changes. Yes, he is obedient. Yes, and should be set an example for us. Yes, but he does all that he does and says all that he says because of who he knows God to be and the truth of God's word, especially when it comes to how we treat the poor. And as we see this truth about how, how we are to treat the poor in society, um, let's appreciate that, that the message of caring for the poor and the needy has been what God has been saying to his people for centuries. 
uh, as we engage with this account today, our minds may automatically be cast to think of some of the images that we've seen over the last uh, two weeks, three weeks in Ukraine. And perhaps as a result of today, God will prompt you to do something about that, to, to sign up for the Homes for Ukraine, to, to give aid to those who are on the ground bringing relief. And perhaps even as we think about this in the broader terms, your mind will be taken to the plight of millions of refugees in many other settings, tragic as they are across the world. Perhaps even you'll be drawn to consider those much closer to home, those who live in our city, yet they, they, they live week by week with the burden of debt, with the very real possibility of fuel poverty as, as cost of living skyrocket. And so we're, we're encouraged, but maybe even we're, we're disheartened at times by news that we hear from organizations like Christians Against Poverty, where we see the needs right on our doorstep. Uh, and we'll, we'll send out the, the most recent CAP update um, soon so that you can see what's going on and the needs that are there. But the point is this, h- however God stirs our hearts this morning to respond to these crises that we see around us, let's follow the example of Nehemiah and act as God leads us. See, as we saw in our Head, Heart, Hand series, when it comes to hearing God's word, we are encouraged, if not commanded, to not merely listen to the word and so deceive ourselves, but do what it says. James 1.22. And so as we listen to God's word today, let's be prepared to do what he tells us to do through it. And so we're going to read together the whole of chapter 5 of Nehemiah, where part of what we see uh, is God's concern for the poor. So let me read that chapter with us. If you don't have a Bible with you, then please try to find one around you. There might be a, a hardback red one. Uh, in the pews in front of you. If you don't have a Bible at home, then please take that with you. Uh, That's our gift to you. We'd love you to have a copy of God's Word. So Nehemiah chapter 5. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay for the king's taxes on our fields and vineyards. Although we are the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews and through our, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have had to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry on these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, As far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, What you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of of God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending people money and grain. But let us stop charging interest. Give them back. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves and houses and also the interest you are charging them, 1% of the money, grain, new wine and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. 
Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in, order, in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire uh, any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. And every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. And Once again, there there are many things that we can learn here from what God is going to show us through Nehemiah's attitudes and his words and his actions. Um, But for the short time that we have left this morning, I want to break this chapter down into three main sections. And those main sections are going to flow uh, some of the paragraph, actually, uh, definitions that you'll see possibly in your your Bibles. But Nehemiah, we're going to see his concern in verse 1 to 6. We're going to see his conviction in verses 7 to 13. And then finally, we'll see his conduct, verse 14 to 19. His concern, his conviction, and his conduct. And so let's think firstly about then the concern of Nehemiah. Well, this chapter begins with this great concern being brought to Nehemiah's attention. In fact, we're told it's a great outcry that's been raised, and it's a serious issue. And we can see as we're given the details of it, it is indeed a serious issue. In verse 2, we see that these families can't sustain themselves. They're facing the very real threat of starvation and death. Verse 3, then, we're also told that some families are mortgaging their fields and their vineyards just to get grain. In verse 4, some of them, are, some of these families are having to borrow and get buried into debt just to make ends meet, which involves, of course, selling their children into slavery. And this is a desperate situation for these families. But but verse 5 really shows a condemning light on these things. Let me read verse 5. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. And so the debt that these people are living under is becoming so insurmountable that they're even having to sell their own children into slavery just to make payments. But the real goal behind this is that the people who they are being charged by are their own people. They are their fellow Jews. We saw that right in verse 1, didn't we? That they brought an outcry against their fellow Jews. And so this is actually within their own countrymen, within their own community, There's real disparity going on. And the reality of all this evokes a response from Nehemiah. In verse 6, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. This wasn't just an uncomfortable set of circumstances. This was unacceptable. This was improper. This, as we see in verse 9, this is not right. And so Nehemiah is deeply concerned about this state of affairs and the plight of the people who are facing this mistreatment, and his emotions are stirred, he gets angry. And I'm sure many of us can understand a similar experience when we see evidence of injustice or oppression around the world. Uh, Maybe it was as we do watch things unfold in Ukraine. Maybe it's even a Friday night if you happen to catch any comic relief, and 42 million quid has been raised for comic relief, but you see some of the, the destitution that people live in and the struggles that they're under. 
maybe when we hear updates from organizations like the Food Bank or CAP, our emotions are start, we feel something. And at times we may feel even that sense of justified anger at the wrongs that are being done against God's people, against those who bear God's image as human beings. But let me, let me point this briefly deeper than our emotion. You see, in Nehemiah's case, his anger at the injustice wasn't just about the injustice itself. Because the injustice was actually a symptom of something deeper. It was a symptom of a deeper problem. And that problem was rebellion against God. And that rebellion against God was being worked out in the injustice. See, it becomes clearer as we work our way through the chapter. But, but let me very briefly take a moment through some of Israel's history to show what has motivated the anger in Nehemiah here. See, through some of the Mosaic law, there are several references to how God said his people should treat the poor, especially the poor among them. So Leviticus 25, in the midst of instructions about celebrating the year of Jubilee, this year where all debts were cancelled, where all property was returned to its original family or clan, this year of liberty, in the midst of that, we read these words in verse 35 to 40. If any of your, your fellow Israelites become poor and are unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner or stranger so they can continue to live among you. Do not take interest or any profit for them, but fear your God so that they may continue to live among you. You must not lend them money at interest or sell them food at a profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and sell themselves to you, do not make them work as slaves. They are to be treated as hard workers or temporary residents among you. They are to work for you until the year of Jubilee. And when we read that and then we see Nehemiah 5, can't we see the contrast? Again, speaking in the, the year of cancelling debt in Deuteronomy 15. Um, Patrick, can you fire mine on there? Sorry, just one slide. Um, there will always be poor people in the land, we're told. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. To be open-handed, well, what's been suggested here in Nehemiah is anything but open-handedness, isn't it? But this... This teaching from Leviticus and Deuteronomy and other places, this teaching is God's standard. This is the way that his people should live and how his people should treat the poor. And of course, the prophets who were contemporaries and before the exile took place, the prophets leveled this accusation against the Jewish people that you have neglected the poor. And that was part of the reason they were taken into exile in the first place. Now that they're starting to return, and they're not that long back, but they're already starting to, uh, to let this selfishness and this abuse take place. And so this makes Nehemiah angry. Uh, and it'll become clear as we work our way through the chapter, but that anger is, is because of his fear of the Lord, out of his reverence for God, his understanding of God's truth, of the way that God would have his people live. And he can see that being frequently neglected as he hears this report, and it makes him angry. And so this idea of revering the Lord or fearing the Lord, that's how Nehemiah wants to live. That's how he wants his people to live. I read this week someone defining fearing the Lord as honoring God's name, obeying God's word, and loving God's people. Honoring God's name, obeying God's word, and loving God's people. That seems to be the way Nehemiah wants to live. That seems to be the standard he knows God has set. And so he is concerned, more than that maybe, by what he's seen above him. 
and around him, sorry, this, this uh, news that has been brought to him. And what we're now going to see is how that concern leads to something. It leads to a conviction and it leads to his conduct. And so let's think about uh, Nehemiah's conviction. Uh, I must admit, I'm slightly amazed by Nehemiah here. Verse 6, he's burning with anger. And then verse 7 starts, I pondered them in my mind. The ESV even writes this, I took counsel with myself. I'm not sure about you, but that's not my immediate response to anger, especially this kind of social injustice against God's way kind of anger. But he doesn't allow his heightened emotions to determine his action. No, no, he takes time to reflect on what God has taught. He gathers his thoughts and then he accuses those who are in charge. And he accuses them publicly. He calls a large meeting, we're told. Everyone is going to hear about what's been going on and everyone's going to hear what Nehemiah is going to say. There's, a, there's an accountability here to the whole community as well as a responsibility that they will all carry. And these people, when Nehemiah start talking, these people know they've done wrong. In verse 8, we read, they could find nothing to say. There's no defense for what they've been doing. And so, change must take place. They're to stop charging interest. They're to give back what they had wrongly taken. And and they do. Verse 12 shows us that they promise to. Again, in verse 12, they take oaths, oaths to make sure and commit that that will happen. They publicly declare, collectively so in verse 13, they all say amen and praise the Lord. This is a complete reversal, isn't it? And once again, we're shown that this change of heart in the people and change of action that will follow is then brought about by a reminder of God's truth. See, Nehemiah's conviction is is based in verse 9. And so I continued, what you're doing is not right. There's the statement of fact. Then he goes on, shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile neighbors, Gentile enemies, sorry, shouldn't you walk? Doesn't the way of God stand in contrast to how you're living? Think about what we've just read in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Of course there's a contrast here. This is an obvious question. But it's a searching one, and it's certainly loaded. It is designed to bring the people to repentance and change. But in pointing it out in this way, it seems God is reminding them of what they already know. This isn't new teaching for these folks. They know that they should be treating the poor differently. But they need to be reminded of it afresh. And so, shouldn't you walk in the fear of the Lord? And so, Nehemiah brings this conviction to realign their behavior with their belief. They know how they should be, in theory. And so, shouldn't you be walking in that way? There's been this huge gap. I don't know if you've, you know, when you're in, if you've ever been to London and you're about to step onto an underground train, the massive writing on the, on the yellow on the, on the side of the platform, mind the gap. There's this huge gap has appeared between their belief and their behavior. And God constantly calls his people to close that gap. And more accurately, that takes place by submitting to him to allow our behavior to be determined by what he has said. It's not about us trying harder. It's about submitting more. And and that maybe sounds a little bit too neat and tidy. That's all it takes. Just submit to God and all will be well. Many of us know that the conviction that is brought in this way, when we, maybe those of us who have followed Jesus for a while, we know that sense of God or somehow bringing to our attention that sense of, shouldn't you be walking differently? We know that that can be uncomfortable. We know that it can be difficult to put the changes in place that we need. Certainly for the case for these Jews, these wealthier Jews, we're going to forego some economic benefit here. 
But God's ways are always and eternally better. So it is always going to be better to walk in fear of our God. So yes, this might have meant the decrease in income for some of these Jews. But it could mean the flourishing of the wider community. And the flourishing of the wider community would then speak to those Gentiles around them of the goodness of their God. And so when it comes to this conviction that can sometimes come, where we feel that sense of we know the theory of the truth of God's ways, yet our lives aren't reflecting it and we're convicted by that sense of, shouldn't we walk in fear of our God? If you're sensing that this morning in any way of life, if that's about your finances, maybe if that's about your speech, maybe if that's about how you treat your colleagues or your family members, there's loads of ways in which we can be convicted of this. Please don't leave it. Don't ignore it. God is trying to warn you and graciously invite you back into a deeper relationship of faithfulness with him. So that's what we see here through Nehemiah. That's the invitation. And the final thing that we're going to look at then is Nehemiah's conduct. You see, when when conviction translates to conduct, it it accomplishes much. Thanks, Patrick. So let's move on to, to view these final few verses from verse 14 to 19. So this chapter concludes, and Nehemiah explains more about his personal circumstances here. Um, he, he shows that uh, there are certain things that he didn't do and certain things that he did do. Uh, and I love that pattern throughout Scripture. We tend to find that lots. It's repeated uh, in a lot of places, particularly First uh, and Second Timothy. We see that a lot of, we should, or we used to live this way, now we live this way. We see it uh, loads and loads, where this negative sinful behavior is replaced by positive godly ones. And so we see this example in Nehemiah here of things that he didn't do, that he knew would be wrong to do, so he didn't do them, and the ways that he did then act in godly fashion. And so in verse 14 and 15, we see Nehemiah didn't take the benefits that were were allotted to him, that he could easily have taken as the governor. Um, But he knew that in taking them, it would place a heavy burden on people. His his predecessors as governors had done that, and he had seen the negative impact of it, so he chose not to. He, He went without so that others would be benefited. Instead, then, verse 16 starts. So previous governors had acted in this way. Instead, verse 16, and here we have the replacement behavior of what could have been a negative for Nehemiah. He didn't want to place that heavy burden on the people. Instead, verse 16, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. See, Nehemiah devotes himself to what God had called him to do. Back in chapter 2, verse 12, Nehemiah makes it clear God had laid this rebuilding project on his heart. And his devotion to that purpose then meant that the possible material distractions that could have come his way were more easily ignored. If I could put it in this way. Thanks, Patrick. When when you're devoted to God's ways, there's little opportunity to drift from them. When your affection and your energy is taken up by God's ways, then it's easier to see the lies that come and the, the second-rate nature of the things that come, come to offer themselves to us. The temptations that come, the drift that might be possible away from God's truth, it just becomes so less, more, less attractive when we're devoted to God's ways. When we're so devoted to God's ways, there's little opportunity to drift from them. And so Nehemiah seems to be living this way out. He's devoted to God's plan. But in verse 17 and 18, he actually shows that he was then generously living. And that cost him personally. These 150 Jews and officials who joined him daily, they had to be fed somehow. And the inference is that this is coming straight from Nehemiah's pocket. 
Uh, and this might say extreme to us, but there's no sense of a begrudging tone in Nehemiah here, should there isn't? He's saying, I didn't take the, govern- uh, the governor's al- allocation, but all of these people were fed and watered in my service and 150 of them were at my table. See, it, it seems to demonstrate a, a much more healthy attitude to money and possessions. It wasn't just about what Nehemiah could acquire in his position, how he could lord his authority over the people. No, no, no. Money was a commodity to use. It was not a god to be worshipped, which is a phrase that one commentator used. Money is a commodity to use, not a god to be worshipped. Nehemiah was clearly able to use his money. He wasn't controlled by his money. Now I realize that that's an easy thing to say when you have some. But when your bank balance is healthy, when you've got a couple of months at least in reserve, I know that that's easy to say. Yeah, yeah, fine, yeah. Don't be, don't be controlled by your money. But remember the folks back in verse 5, they felt powerless to do anything about it. And, and so if you find yourself in financial strain, please know there is hope, there is help. Organizations like Christians Against Poverty can, can help counsel our way through debt. There's lots of things that we as a church family would love to do. Surely one of the things that this teaches us is that God's people should live generously together. Think about the Acts example. Acts 4, when they sell property and possessions, and Acts 2 as well, they sell property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And so if you find yourself in need this morning, I know it's difficult, I know it's, it, it's, there's a lot, of, a lot of stigma attached to this, but please let us know so we can offer some help. Because none of us, if we're following Jesus, we're, we're not supposed to be mastered by money. Remember Jesus' teaching in Matthew 4? 24, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and love and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And so whether that is serving it in a sense that we always want to gain more, or serving it and that the lack of it is controlling everything that we have, every decision that we make, then please know that Christ does not want us to live that way. It doesn't mean that he's going to flood your bank account, but he's just showing that the eternal riches in him or what life is what re- is what life after him is really all about. And so we can live in a way, and when we live in a way like Nehemiah, where we're not controlled by our finances, then those of us who are blessed with an abundance are, are free to use those finances for the glory of God. And ultimately, as we see from Nehemiah's prayer in the last verse here, it is God who we serve, isn't it? It's God's opinion who matters most. When he is our master then we want him to remember us with favor. We want him to say to us on that day when he returns, well done, good and faithful servant. And so it's God's gaze and his smile that we want on us. And that's why we live this radically different life to the way around us. Yes, we, we may not win accolades from the world around us when we live in this sacrificial, open-handed way. We may not be deemed a, a success by certain people's measures. But when we're living for God's approval, and his smile is all we need. When he's our master, it's only his evaluation that counts. So here we see this potential threat to the people of Jerusalem, this, this economic struggle that was taking place. Uh, and in response to the needs of the poor in the community, Nehemiah demonstrates this right concern, this concern that faithfulness to God matters most in how they live out their lives. He, he shows this right conviction that remembering God's ways is paramount. And he shows us the right conduct, that living under God's gaze, obeying him, is all that truly counts. 
And so this is a good model for any and every walk of our lives. It includes our finances, yes. So that we should be allowing God to lead us in our spending and in our saving. We should allow his concern for every image-bearing human being on the planet to shape our outgoings. But above all, it is God who we serve. He is our master. He is our ultimate Lord and King. And so we allow his truth and his teaching and his lifestyle to become ours and shape our life and our generosity. Let's pray together as we finish. Our Lord, we thank you for your good word to us. We thank you, Father, that you teach us and you continually teach us. Thank you, our Lord, that uh, even in, in, uh, in the big issues of life, like our finances, which, to be honest, many of us feel uncomfortable talking about or thinking about, but, Father, you, you give us guidance. You give us your way for your people to live, for how your people should be concerned about the poor and needy around us, how your people should be living uh, with our eyes focused on you, not on our earthly possessions. So, God, I pray that you'd help us. Help those of us, Father, who you are speaking to, who you are convicting, whether it is about our finances or some other area of life where your Holy Spirit is at work in our lives, showing us and highlighting areas where we've allowed a gap to form between our belief and our behavior. Lord, by your Spirit and in the help that only you can give, would you help us to respond to your invitation back to faithfulness? Shape us more and more into the likeness of Christ, we pray. And Lord, we, we recognize that, that all of this, uh, th- this teaching that you give us on how to live, this, uh, this new and profound, different attitude to life because we have eternal life, it is all only possible because of your son, Jesus Christ, and what he has won for us on the cross. And so we thank you and we praise you that you gave, that you sacrificed, so that we would know the benefit of grace and love and forgiveness from sin. We would know the the rescue from hell. We would know the the joy of life eternal, of Jesus taking the wrath that we deserve so that we would know your acceptance and grace. And so we pray, Father, that as we come around the table now to celebrate that and remember that, Father, would you stir our hearts again. And above all, Father, however we respond to those economic crises around us, however we live our lives and our daily giving and however we manage our money, Lord, we pray that you would be our master and our words and our attitudes and our actions would demonstrate that, would be an outworking of your mastery and lordship in our lives. We need your help for this, Father. Thank you that you are willing to give it. And so we pray that in all things, you would be blessed, you would be glorified, and that those who watch on from around would see your people faithfully living your way and be drawn to your goodness, be drawn to your mercy. So we thank you, Father. Be glorified in us, we pray. Amen. Amen.